real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance. Confucius. This podcast contains things that we may not know or fully understand, but that may well kill some or all of us. In each case, a better understanding of the danger may improve our chances of being among the survivors. Any opinions expressed here are mine. I bring these issues to your attention in the hope that you'll be motivated to further your understanding through continued research and honest discussion. Death by Ignorance does not contain profanity. It does, however, present content that may be disturbing to some listeners. The material is intended for a mature audience and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Death by Ignorance, Episode 5, Facebook and the Anti-Vax Movement. I'll be honest, I didn't want to cover this subject. Not because it isn't a legitimate issue to discuss, it certainly is. I just didn't want to waste my time preaching to the choir, rehashing all the same scientific evidence, marveling at the convoluted nonsense proposed by the deluded anti-vaxxers. But a friend of mine asked me to do an episode on this topic, and I'm just not very good at saying no. So as I sat down to start my research for this discussion, I expected it to take an hour or two and involved checking a few facts, making sure I had all the latest stats. I'd already thrown together an outline. It was going to be business as usual. Here's what the anti-vaxxers think. Here are the facts. And here is why their convoluted, conspiratorial, closed-minded, anti-intellectual nonsense is dangerous. The end. And then it struck me that I might be missing the point entirely. The way I was planning to present this information to you, the familiar us versus them and aren't we clever arguments, started to feel a little bit more like part of the problem than part of the solution. The reason I was initially inclined to follow the path of least resistance, bashing on the anti-vax movement, stems from my absolute confidence in the scientific process. I've read the MMR autism studies carefully, repeatedly, and critically, and accept that the link between MMR and autism is, to a high degree of statistical confidence, non-existent. And my mistake was to take my confidence in the scientific evidence and discard everything else, every crackpot theory, every illogical conclusion out of hand. By doing that, I was framing the problem as we are right and you are wrong. And in so doing, I was constraining the universe of possible solutions to just one. You must believe what we believe. But all the evidence points to the fact that this isn't going to happen. So I decided that for this conversation to stand any chance of moving the needle for anyone, I had to abandon this unhelpful, polarizing, I'm right, you're wrong position and reframe the question. Instead of asking, what the hell is wrong with you people? I think we need to address the elephant in the room and ask, 
What role has society played in creating the conditions necessary for this pervasive understanding gap to even exist? And how is our rhetoric driving anti-vaxxers to dig in? The World Health Organization released a statement earlier this year in which they characterized the anti-vax movement as a major threat to public health. That is undeniably true. And it puts us all on notice that our old way of thinking isn't going to get us out of this mess. If it were just a matter of handing over the scientific evidence and saying, here, read this, what you believe is wrong, we'd already have fixed it. So how should we approach this threat? Well, a couple of disclaimers, I think, are in order first. I'm not an immunologist, a virologist, an infectious disease physician, a microbiologist, a sociologist, or a psychiatrist. I don't do vaccine research. But as a physician, I've been trained to evaluate research critically and carefully. And I've read all the important peer-reviewed papers concerning the purported links between the MMR vaccine thimerosal, and autism. I've also reread the fraudulent study that got this whole mess started and have closely followed the claims of anti-vax thought leaders for several years now. I've read much of the material put forward in defense of the anti-vaccination position. I've sought out and spoken to a number of staunch anti-vaxxers, some by email and some in face-to-face -face meetings. I've listened to their concerns and considered their opinions. In these meetings, I didn't refute their beliefs or even state my own position. I just listened to what they had to say. In short, I believe I have a good understanding of both the science and the pseudoscience around this issue. As you will soon see, the vaccination problem, while very important, is really just the tip of the iceberg. So, let's start with a little background. What is a vaccine? A vaccine is a substance, usually a biologic derivative of a disease-causing agent, that confers immunity to infection by that agent. It does so by conditioning the immune system to recognize and neutralize the agent if it ever sees it in the future. The vaccine contains dead or deactivated viruses, or it uses some part of the infection-causing agent, like a surface protein or a toxin, to trick the immune system into believing it's seeing the actual agent and thus preparing the antibodies to fight the actual pathogen at some point in the future. In 1798, British scientist Edward Jenner coined the term vaccine after discovering that inoculating a patient with a strain of variola, the virus that caused cowpox, would give the patient lasting immunity to the far more dangerous disease of smallpox. Since that time, scientists with names like Pasteur and Salk and Hilleman have developed vaccines effective against 25 preventable infectious diseases, all but eradicating them. At least until now, that is. As with any medical therapy, and with seatbelts for that matter, vaccination is not always effective. 
It requires the patient to have a working immune system, and that might not be the case in older patients or patients with diabetes, HIV, and several other conditions. The immunity conferred may not be sufficient to fight off a particular infection, with a particularly virulent microbe, for example, or one caused by a mutated strain of the virus. But just like the seatbelt, vaccinations usually do work, just as advertised. And because of this, they are the single most effective way to prevent infectious disease. And what are the diseases that are no longer killing us and our children? Some really nasty actors, to be sure. Diphtheria, tetanus and whooping cough, hepatitis, cervical cancer from human papillomavirus infection, influenza, meningitis, measles, mumps, and rubella, polio, infectious enteritis caused by rotavirus, and, of course, smallpox. Vaccination had virtually eradicated polio, measles, tetanus, and smallpox from the face of the planet. As we're going to be looking at the purported link between the MMR vaccine, the preservative thimerosal, and autism, we should take a moment to consider each of these key players and the illnesses that the vaccine provides immunity to. Measles. Measles is an infection caused by a virus in the genus Morbillivirus of the family Paramyxoviridae. The actual name of the virus is just the measles virus. Come on, science, you can do better than that. The virus is airborne and incredibly contagious. You can pick it up just by breathing the same air as an infected individual, even hours after our typhoid Mary, or measles Melissa, I guess, has left the room. It takes several days to incubate in the body before symptoms appear. The typical course lasts a week, during which time the infected person can expect high fevers, runny nose, a cough, red, itchy eyes, and of course, an absolutely awesome rash. The infection suppresses the immune system and can lead to complications like diarrhea, ear infections, and pneumonia. About 1 in 10 will experience at least one of these complications. A smaller number will go on to have seizures, lose their eyesight forever, or develop encephalitis, a brain inflammation that can lead to permanent brain injury and death. It affects adults and children, but it kills mostly kids under five. 2.6 million people died from the measles in 1980. That number fell to half a million in 1990, and by 2014, there were about 73,000 deaths. But between 2017 and today, the numbers have started to go back up, and the upward trend shows no sign of slowing. And studies have confirmed that the rising numbers are solely due to the decreasing rate of vaccination. Mumps. Mumps is another highly contagious viral disease. It causes fever, malaise, muscle pain, 
and a truly impressive swelling of the parotid and submandibular salivary glands, giving patients the look of a very large, very sick hamster. Complications include pneumonia, pancreatitis, deafness, inflammation of the heart, and testicular inflammation that can lead to sterility. Rubella. Rubella is also known as German measles. It is a much milder viral illness. It lasts two to three days and comes with a delightfully itchy rash. Babies born to mothers infected with rubella early in their pregnancy are at risk for cataracts, deafness, and heart and brain anomalies. I have had all three of these viral illnesses and consider myself a connoisseur of infantile rashes and swollen glands. By far the most memorable of the three for me was uh, my bout with the mumps. My symptoms appeared on the first day of my summer holiday when I think I was six, and I finally started feeling halfway better on the way back home two weeks later. It was a Highlands holiday that my testicles will never forget. The MMR vaccine is a combination of vaccines against the three causative agents for measles, mumps, and rubella. It's given in two doses, the first at a year of age and the second a few months later, but definitely before age six. With both doses given, it is effective in conferring immunity to measles at a rate of 97%, to mumps at around 88%, and to rubella at 97%. MMR has been around since 1971 and consists of the live but greatly weakened viruses causing each disease. The rate of serious complications with the administration of the MMR vaccine is not quite one in a million cases. Compare that to the rate of complications leading to death in patients with measles which is between one and two in a thousand, and you'll see the risk from measles is 2,000 times that of the vaccine. Oh, and MMR does not cause autism. Autism is a term denoting a spectrum of developmental disorders characterized by difficulties with social interactions and communication and by repetitive, restricted motor behaviors. It develops gradually and is believed to be associated with a combination of environmental and genetic factors. The disorder has been linked to the in utero exposure to a number of different toxins, including alcohol, cocaine, valproic acid, and pesticides. Maternal rubella infection has also been proposed as a potential risk. There is no evidence that exposure to the MMR vaccine is linked to the spectrum of autistic disorders. The Marisal is a mercury-based preservative commonly used to stabilize the influenza vaccine that is no longer even used in the MMR vaccine. It's used in some of the early stages of vaccine manufacture, but it is removed from the end product. The amount of mercury found in the MMR vaccine is infinitesimal 
and mirrors the trace mercury concentration found elsewhere in the environment. Let's pause for a moment to answer one very important question. Why should any of this matter to me? I vaccinated all 34 of my children, they're safe. What harm is being done by a handful of ignoramuses and their cultish determination to kill their own kids with preventable diseases? Why not just leave them to it? The reason that is a bad idea is because of a thing called herd immunity. Herd immunity occurs when more than 95% of the herd is immune and the resulting lack of available hosts for the infecting virus to breed in means it has nowhere to gain a foothold. For a virus to be successful in any given population, it needs to have access to that threshold 5% of unimmunized individuals. Of course, 5% is an approximation, and that'll vary with the specific virus, its virulence, the population size, and many, many other factors. But the point is that when herd immunity is established, the virus can no longer survive in that population. And those individuals who cannot be immunized, people with primary immune system problems or medical conditions or medical treatments that render them immunocompromised, are protected. So if everyone who can be immunized is immunized, The chances of your child, who is currently getting chemotherapy for her rhabdomyosarcoma, dying from measles, will drop to just about zero. This is the reason that non-medical exemptions from vaccination are neither justifiable or defensible. This information about the diseases and the vaccine has been accumulated over decades of careful scientific inquiry. They offer a summary of the scientific consensus, but let's be careful about how we use the word fact. Science does not output facts. That's because science simply doesn't work like that. And this is a really important concept. We must be absolutely clear about what science is and what it is not. It is the lack of clarity on this question that leads to many of the core memes endlessly paraded out by anti-science zealots. Science is a process. Here's how we do science. We have an idea. Say, there is a direct causal relationship between striking a thumb with a five-pound hammer dropped from 24 inches and the subjective experience of sudden severe thumb pain. Okay, seems like a reasonable idea. Well, let's devise an experiment to test our hypothesis. We conduct the experiment with meticulous care and precision and we document every detail of how we do it. We recruit a large group of test subjects. Difficult for this experiment, I'm sure. We use a control group where no hammer is used and we blind the experimenter so that he or she cannot tell which subjects are in the control group or which are in the experimental group. A soundproofed room may be helpful in this case. And we start collecting the data. We then analyze the data to see if our experimental findings 
confirm our hypothesis. In this case, we had 1,000 test subjects and 1,000 controls. A thousand of the test subjects reported pain at a level of 10 out of 10. 1,000 of the controls reported pain at a level of 0 on the same 0 to 10 scale. We publish our results. At this point, we have enough evidence to say that with an extremely high confidence level, that our hypothesis is probably correct, but not an absolute immutable fact. To say that, we would have to test every thumb in the universe. So this is where we have to settle. Other scientists, though, may question the experimental methodology or have concerns about the statistical analysis and decide to repeat the experiment, only this time using a five-pound monkey wrench. They repeat the experiment using our study as a template and find their results correlate exactly with our own. Well, that proves the original hypothesis, right? Well, no, but it further increases our confidence. It makes it a little more probable that our hypothesis is correct. Now, pay attention, this is the important part. A third group of thumb pain specialists noted that both the hammer and the wrench from the previous two studies were made of steel, and they hypothesized that it was the steel content that was causing the pain, not the force of the falling object. They devised an experiment to test their hypothesis using protocols identical to the first two experiments, but replacing the steel hammer or wrench with a hammer of pure copper. And when they conducted the experiment, they found that only 999 of the test subjects reported 10 out of 10 pain. 0.1% of the test subjects and 100% of the controls reported no pain. Unbeknownst to the experimenters, test subject number 385 had transected his median and radial nerves in a freak card shuffling accident as a child. His test thumb was insensate. So where does this leave the scientific consensus regarding the original hypothesis? Well, if you're a scientist, this third experiment is interesting and raises some exciting questions, but it makes very little difference to the probability that the original hypothesis is a good working approximation of the truth. But that's all science can ever give us, an ever closer approximation of the actual condition within a system. And where is science on the MMR autism matter? This is the current best understanding. Vaccination is safe. Vaccination is effective. Vaccination does not cause autism. Thimerosal, the mercury-based preservative that's no longer even used in childhood vaccines, does not cause autism. Vaccination does not weaken the human immune system. It strengthens it. Immunity conferred by vaccination is safer than immunity resulting from prior infection. The amounts of mercury, aluminum, and formaldehyde present in vaccines are minuscule and mirror the trace amounts found in the environment.
But let's go back for just a second to the thumb experiment. What do you think the anti-science advocate would make of that third experiment? Well, obviously, from their perspective, it disproves the hypothesis entirely and renders any conclusions drawn from the series of experiments as completely invalid. And that way of thinking is part of the problem. This is the difference between healthy scientific skepticism and just dismissive cynicism. Skepticism is the rocket fuel that drives scientific inquiry, the thing that leads us step by precious step to a more complete understanding of our world. Cynicism, though, is the refuge of the ignorant. It is, in the words of Herbert Spencer, contempt prior to investigation. Reality can't be forced to conform to the false absolutism of the cynical, and only a cynic could arrive at the conclusion that a single incongruous data point has the relevance and power to discredit an entire hypothesis. Makes me think that the original unfortunate baby who found herself airborne with the bathwater must have been the offspring of a climate denier and an anti-vaxxer. A marriage made in heaven, no doubt. Anyway, getting back to the point, we've looked at the science, but what arguments are the anti-vax community putting forward to challenge the science? These are the points that most frequently showed up in my conversations and in my reading. When asked why they have chosen not to vaccinate their children, this is what I was told. Number one. We don't need vaccines for these diseases because the diseases are so rare, which is the same as the, when was the last time you saw someone at work with smallpox, huh? So this statement hardly needs rebuttal, but just in case, the reason we don't see smallpox is because the vaccination works. Variola still exists, and if you would like to try smallpox, don't get vaccinated. Two, vaccines weaken the immune system. Nope, they do pretty much the exact opposite. Vaccination prepares your immune system to kill the virus should you ever be exposed to it in the future. The word immunity should be your first clue. Number three, MMR and or thimerosal cause autism. Well, yes, they do if you believe the word of one crooked, self-serving, discredited and disgraced Andrew Wakefield and discount every other scientific study that has ever been done since then. The Wakefield phenomenon is a particularly interesting topic that I'm going to address shortly. The right answer is, of course, no, they don't. The medical literature contains reports from at least nine CDC-funded independently verified research projects by some of the leading researchers in the field, none of which found any link between the vaccine, its additives, and autism. Number four, immunity gained by infection with a virus is safer and better than immunity conferred with vaccination. Again, the opposite is true. Natural immunity requires exposure to the active pathogen, which means getting sick with the disease, and for some of them, 
dying. The whole reason for vaccination is that it's safer than natural immunity. That's why it was invented. Five, vaccines contain dangerously high levels of formaldehyde, mercury, and aluminum. Nope, again. They contain minute trace amounts of these substances, if any at all. Drinking tap water or eating food will expose you to more of each of these poisons. Six, it is my basic human right to decide what I put in my body. This is an interesting contortion. First off, it isn't your body, in case you hadn't noticed. Secondly, your right to decide what goes in your child's body stops the instant it steps on my child's right not to get measles from your child. Lastly, and apropos of nothing, there's a huge overlap between the groups of you can't legislate what I put in my body people and the people that say he should be locked up for putting that penis in his body. I'm just saying. Where do these stories come from? Who is making them up? And who's keeping them alive? Why does exposure to scientific consensus have absolutely no power to correct this kind of faulty thinking? Before we delve into these important areas, there's one more important piece of background that we need to consider. And that is the role of one particularly virulent pathogen, one that continues to add to human misery and one with a steadily rising body count. That pathogen is Andrew Wakefield. Wakefield was a British doctor, a gastroenterologist, disgraced and struck off for unethical behavior, misconduct and dishonesty after he published a fraudulent study linking the MMR vaccine to autism. The study he conducted was a stunning example of exactly how not to do research. For anybody who enjoys watching a nice car crash, I'm gonna put his retracted paper in the show notes. I dare you to read it. The paper was initially published in the prestigious British medical journal, The Lancet, where it caused a storm of criticism. The Lancet eventually retracted the paper, calling it utterly false, but only after 12 years had elapsed. So for 12 years, this dishonest and irresponsible garbage remained part of the medical literature. And although the medical community knew the study for what it was, rubbish, it was still out there and doing incalculable harm in the public sphere. Subsequent research has shown that this paper was part of an elaborate scheme to drive business to a new company that Wakefield was planning to start in the wake of his scare. Yes, you heard that right. This person was planning to start a company that would do testing for MMR-caused autism. And to make it work, he first had to invent MMR-caused autism. Unbelievable. It's worth noting that Wakefield is still spreading his nonsense and has since become king of the anti-vaxxers. He now lives in Texas, 
So he should probably try to get a job as the medical advisor to Ted Cruz. I think that would be a perfect fit. But I digress. Wakefield raises some really interesting questions. Surely a well-educated man earning his degree from St. Mary's Medical School in London, the alma mater of the great Alexander Fleming, no less, he must know better. He can't actually believe the tripe he tells his followers. Or can he? It's quite possible that this criminal has become so invested in his version of alternative reality that he actually does believe what he's saying. To admit that he was lying would cause him to admit a lot of other very distasteful facts about Wakefield the man. And he sure as hell doesn't want to do that. Clinging to this key story may be the only way he has to survive. Another interesting question is how he can possibly still hold his followers mesmerized, hanging on his every word. This one also has a fairly straightforward explanation. It most likely results from motivated reasoning on the part of his groupies. It goes like this. I believe MMR causes autism. Wakefield believes MMR causes autism. Wakefield is therefore the victim of a smear campaign and a multinational anti-Wakefield conspiracy orchestrated by the MMR vaccine manufacturers. Or put another way, if the whole world is right about this charlatan, I might be wrong about the MMR vaccine. And I'm not wrong. Quad erat demonstrandum. So what are we missing? What can explain the existence and growth of such a profoundly wrong-headed worldview? I have a few ideas of how we got here and why we seem certain to stay here, maybe long enough to destroy this planet. To understand the anti-vax culture, we need to understand a few preconditions, circumstances that have made us so vulnerable to situations like this. And as we go through them, it would be useful to look for parallels in other areas of human endeavor. We need to understand this one issue of anti-vax insanity as a mere symptom of a far more advanced and malignant disease. There are some things we can and must do to address the vaccination crisis, and I will go over them shortly. But we cannot lose sight of the bigger picture. Fixing the anti-vax problem without understanding the core issue is like trimming the toenails on your gangrenous leg. It's all about priorities. So first things first, these are six of the more relevant preconditions necessary for a society to grow its own crop of anti-vaxxers. Problem number one. This, the problem of inadequate science communication, is at the bottom of the problem list, mostly because we aren't doing that bad of a job. The materials that are put out there by organizations like the CDC are very clear and easy to understand. Where we need to improve is in how and where we disseminate this important information. It should be getting into the hands or onto the screens of every expectant parent in the country, which might already be happening. If so, forgive me. 
I'm going to be getting into more detail in a minute, but we need to make important, useful information as easy or easier to find than the fetid torrent of misinformation or sewage that is getting pumped into American heads 24-7. Better and more science communication may be able to take some of the wind out of the anti-vaxxers' sails. But just a little. Problem number two. This is really just a subset of the fifth problem on my list, but I don't want to spoil the surprise, so for now we'll call problem number two the mistrust of science. We need to write better science stories for lay readers. We need to show the population what science is doing for their health, for their comfort, for their lifestyle. We need to demystify the scientific process and teach people how science works. What it is and what it isn't. Scientists need to come down from their ivory towers and engage with the public in schools and libraries and civic groups and at the county fair. They need to take off their white coats, and this goes for doctors too. Butchers can keep the white coats. I think they look cool on butchers. We must work to change the notion that science is something done in secret, behind locked doors, by boffins and eggheads who have nothing to learn from mere mortals like us. Most of all, we need to become utterly transparent in terms of financial ties to industry. The surest way to guarantee the public's mistrust of science is to hide the money. We need to make sure that any science communications that are made available to the public contain a description of any conflicts of interest. That way, we'll at least be able to weigh the credibility of the scientists' conclusions. It would also be valuable to have independent verification of conflict of interest attestations. Science is our civilization's most precious asset. It is humanity's crowning achievement. We need to treat it as such. Whether or not having a more transparent scientific community would have any impact on the anti-vax problem is hard to predict, but we need to make the effort regardless. Problem number three. The mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry, our third problem, is a different kind of problem than the mistrust of science in general. Scientists may well have cultivated an air of superiority and intellectual elitism. That is true. But in my experience, scientists are ultimately motivated by their passion for the process. Almost all the scientists that I know personally are driven to seek the truth and to advance human knowledge. But Big Pharma, despite employing countless scientists, is not science. It is industry and it is big business. The pharmaceutical industry has proven itself over and over again to be the very antithesis of pure science. They're passionate without question, but their passion is for profit. And if in their feverish pursuit of wealth and power they have to pollute a stream or two, buy a few politicians, quadruple the price of insulin or adrenaline, or addict the occasional chronic pain patient, well, so be it. 
the archetypal shareholder consequentialists. Mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry is a serious problem that I believe is one of the few legitimate concerns put forward by the anti-vax movement. But there is a rather obvious workaround. Just don't rely on the statements issued by Merck, the maker of MMR. Instead, read the Public Library of Science Review from 2008 the work on the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, an arm of the National Institutes of Health, from 2006. The study published in the journal Pediatrics in 2004, or the 2002 study conducted by the CDC with the Danish Medical Research Council. These are all extremely trustworthy sources, and the cited studies are, frankly, unimpeachable. At the end of the day, Big Pharma will never earn the public trust, and we should be honest about that with the anti-vaxxers. Tell them, yep, you're spot on, they can't be trusted, but we've been working with independent researchers to find the truth, and this is what we found. If we ever get to the point that we're defending the pharmaceutical industry to the anti-vax movement, then we've already lost the battle. Problem number four. It was interesting to me how many anti-vaxxers cited their lack of trust in the government among their reasons not to vaccinate their offspring. It's certainly problematic that the pharmaceutical industry is the most powerful lobby in Washington. They have so many of your representatives on the payroll in one way or another that it would surprise no one if they used their influence to advance some vaccine agenda. But the MMR combination vaccine was approved way back in 1971. And even after more than a billion doses administered, it can't be that much of a cash cow for Merck. It is a fact that our government is corrupt. Their fealty goes to the highest bidder. Our interests, the people's, are of secondary importance if of any importance at all, to our representatives. And our lawmakers have become so rigidly partisan and terminally polarized that they've forgotten how to compromise. The anti-vaxxers are right to be very concerned about their dysfunctional government, but no more so than every other citizen, and not in relation to their decision on vaccination. And for those who've convinced themselves that the government is the collective mastermind behind a staggering conspiracy to give autism to every man, woman, and child using the top-secret autism supervirus hidden in every dose of the MMR vaccine, a conspiracy that would have to involve every drug company employee, every doctor, scientist, politician, school teacher, insurance executive, basically everyone on the planet except their merry band of anti-vaxxers and Andrew Wakefield, of course. For those folks, I recommend you go talk to your doctor. I think you need to be on a slightly higher dose. Problem number five. Now we're getting to the core of the anti-vax problem, and it's time for a little thought experiment. Let's assume for a minute that science has learned how to communicate. Scientists have earned the trust of the nation. Big Pharma has been broken up. We can dream. 
and replaced by companies who put the well-being of their customers above all else. And that following a freak lightning storm in Washington, D.C., every current and former member of the government, except Ben Carson, you'd never go along with this otherwise, suddenly becomes an honest, hardworking, passionate, incorruptible champion of the people. What will happen to the anti-vax movement then? Nothing, of course, will happen to them. They will go on anti-vaxxing as if nothing had happened. You see, all the conditions and entities that we've been casting a suspicious eye over, they're just the icing on the cake. You could almost call them scapegoats, but only almost. They still have a lot to answer for. There needs to be a more fundamental reason that accounts for phenomena like the anti-vax movement, something that sets the stage, something that predisposes groups of presumably otherwise rational men and women to believe such utter nonsense, to disregard reliable information from trustworthy sources, and to throw themselves behind such astonishingly improbable causes with abandon. The conditioning that makes this kind of thinking possible goes by the name of education. The present state of education in some segments of our society is, or at least should be, an international embarrassment. Let me be absolutely clear that I am not referring to all pre-college education. There are many shining examples of outstanding schools with exceptional curricula, dedicated educators and insightful leadership. I'm also not referring to those institutions that strive for excellence but are hindered by inadequate funding and other circumstances beyond their control. I'm talking specifically about those systems that choose to teach magic as if it were an alternative to science that stifle creativity, that discourage critical thinking. I am planning to cover education in a separate Death by Ignorance podcast, mainly because it's such a huge problem with such huge consequences, but also because it's not being talked about nearly enough. It's not just a problem with the things that our children are not being taught, but also with much of what they are being taught. We teach our bright and impressionable youngsters to believe in magic and fantasy. We have no evidence to support our claims, so we teach them that evidence isn't important. We tell them what to think, but we don't show them how to think. We inculcate conformity with norms without telling them what they mean or where they come from. We expect them to show unquestioning loyalty to authority and punish them for asking why. We contort the meaning of words like theory, proof, evidence and science until even the teachers forget what they mean. We replace critical thinking with dogma. By the time many of our young people's brains have matured to the point at which they can become capable of understanding more abstract and complex concepts, the damage has already been done. You cannot build an inquisitive intellectual superstructure on a foundation of make-believe and wishful thinking. The two are incompatible. 
It's true that a great many of our young people are eventually able to discard this anti-intellectual baggage that they've had to push and drag through grade school and then high school, and some can and do go on to become luminaries in their chosen fields. But it's also true that a great many are not able to outgrow the conditioning. And for them, the world must be a terrifying and confusing place. And these are the individuals who will most likely show up at a Wakefield lecture, angry, frightened, and searching desperately for something that makes sense. But lacking the basics of critical thinking, they don't know how to evaluate evidence, or how to ask the right questions, or how to pull meaning from the data, or how to make sense of the world. So the next time we catch ourselves jeering contemptuously at the man who believes they use pureed aborted fetus parts to make vaccines, we should pause to consider all the ways in which our own educational priorities have conditioned him to think that way. Problem number six, the mother of all problems. But even the anti-intellectualism of our misguided childhood educational system cannot account for the staggering scale of wrong-headed thinking in the developed world. There must be some other factor at play, something bigger, stronger, faster, and something more malevolent. And in case you hadn't figured out the punchline, it's the internet. Not all of the internet, obviously. The internet is one of mankind's most remarkable inventions. It's unlocked undreamt of potential in every aspect of human experience. It's given us access to all of humanity's accumulated knowledge right at our fingertips, and it's made possible instantaneous communication between virtually every point on the globe, and some far beyond the globe. It's allowed us to harness unimaginable computing power. And it has given us Facebook and Twitter and all the other denizens of social media. Yes, it is social media in all its varied hues and flavors, all of them a little putrid, that has earned the gold medal in this pell-mell hell for leather race to the bottom. Social media created by a handful of mostly mad scientists and imbued with the power to topple governments, decide elections, birth and then euthanize fads, dismantle societies, change minds, marginalize dissenters, cover up crimes, rewrite history books, collapse economies, start race wars, pick your pockets, out your gay brother and show pictures of your cat to Sudanese nomads and, of course, create anti-vaccination movements. For the purposes of this discussion, let us invent a fictitious, imaginary, not real, and entirely made-up social media platform. One that is unrelated to, totally different from, and categorically not to be confused with any current, past or future platform, real or imagined. And let us call it Faye's Book, in honor of my Auntie Faye Sugarburger and her book. 
Now, by what mysterious melding of hocus-pocus and jiggery-pokery could Facebook, that harmless app on which you posted the Xerox of your Amazon Fulfillment Center co-worker's buttocks after the Christmas party last year, be responsible for the anti-vax movement? Well, it's a bit complicated, but it goes something like this. Facebook has developed technology that is capable of capturing and analyzing every scrap of data that is input to the platform. It can track every keystroke that you make, use facial recognition to identify the people in every photograph you post or look at. It knows who your friends are, what things you talk to Bob about but won't discuss with Olivia. It knows your shoe size, your preferred ice cream flavor, what concert you went to, and the fact that you went to celebrate your best friend's birthday. Because your computer also has one of those small screen cameras, the app is able to track both your eye movements and your pupil size. And because of this, it knows you don't like doctors, you believe in the death penalty, and you're concerned about your sister's baby getting vaccinated. The app actually has 50,000 data points specifically relating to you, and it has the same number of points on nearly two and a half billion of your closest friends. The app knows what advertising is gonna work for you, and it will show you those ads in a way and at a time or in a place that has been engineered to increase the likelihood of your engaging with the ad. It also knows what kind of news you consume, what you read and what you skip over, what will keep you on the site and what will make you leave. The app exists to manipulate your behavior in a way that is maximally profitable for Facebook's real clients, the advertisers, organizations, and governments that want access to your screen. What you need to understand is that Facebook doesn't give a tinker's cuss whether or not you belong to a 9-11 conspiracy theory book club, have plans to infiltrate Area 51, or use one of Gwyneth's intravaginal jade billiard balls to center your chi. But they do care deeply about keeping you on the app long enough to consume the advertising that has been so carefully curated just for you. So if Faye's algorithm decides that the best way to ensure you remain on the app for that extra 32 seconds a day is by filling your news feed with anti-vax propaganda, then that's what it'll do. Faye is agnostic to the actual content that is being used to lure your engagement, which echo chamber you gravitate towards. Verifiable facts or whole cloth makes no difference. As long as Faye can show her client that you did sign up for a subscription to Guns and Ammo, you did buy another pair of aubergine ballet slippers, or you did join the Communist Party, then her job is done. And if in the process, your head has been stuffed with dangerous nonsense, well, that isn't Faye's problem. And that is largely true. We can't expect social media platforms to verify the content flowing through their apps. We don't want them to be able to do that. 
Can you imagine a world where reality is defined by what Mark thinks? No, it is up to us as the commodity being traded by social media corporations to use our own brains to filter the content, assess the reliability of the sources and decide what's real and what is not. And that takes effort. Not just effort, but concentration, a capacity for critical thinking, open-mindedness and a basic understanding of language, science, social interactions and all the other stuff we should have been taught in school. And I wish that was all we had to worry about, but it isn't. There are a few other dynamics that stand in the way of progress and further blot out the light of reason. Of these, there are three that are of particular interest in the case of the anti-vax movement. And they are entrenchment, social hysteresis, and the Dunning-Kruger effect. The predictable response of anti-vaxxers who are confronted with the scientific evidence is to double down or dig in. This entrenchment is a natural mechanism that kicks in whenever a strongly held belief is challenged. The effect is usually mild and transitory when the challenge is well-informed and the belief itself has a solid evidentiary foundation. The belief will be re-evaluated in light of the new evidence, and if the evidence is sufficiently compelling, the belief will be modified. This might sound familiar. This is science. But when the belief that is strongly held lacks a foundation in evidence, the believer perceives any challenge as a personal attack and the entrenchment is deep and long-lived. The flimsier the unsubstantiated belief, the more emotionally invested the believer becomes and the more resistant to reason they become. Hysteresis is a term actually borrowed from physics. It describes how the physical properties of a system can lag behind the effect that brought them about. The usual example is that of the persistence of a magnetic field after the magnetizing force has been removed. In the social context, it's the persistence of an emotional reaction long after the inciting event. In the specific case of the anti-vax phenomenon, it's the term used to describe the profound and persistent public panic that was induced by the publication of Wakefield's fraudulent 1998 MMR autism paper. The fact that this paper continues to be the driving force behind the anti-vax movement 20 years later is a good example of the power of hysteresis. The third factor is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Put simply, this principle describes the inverse correlation between our actual knowledge in a particular area and our self-assessment of that knowledge. In other words, it describes how the less we actually know of a given subject, the more we think we know. But nobody has put it better than the great John Cleese. He said, if you're very, very stupid, how can you possibly realize that you're very, very stupid? You have to be relatively intelligent to recognize how stupid you are. Amen. 
So in the case of the anti-vaxxer, it is almost impossible to make any headway in a conversation when he believes that he knows more about vaccines and autism than anyone else on the planet. Ignorance is easy, it's powerful, it's self-affirming, and it is virtually indestructible. Knowledge is tedious, difficult, requires constant revision, and the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Is it any wonder, then, that so many of us choose ignorance? Well, we've come full circle, and we're back to the anti-vax problem. As you've already surmised, we can't fix the anti-vax problem without fixing the ignorance problem, and that ship, that sailed a long, long time ago. So we need to stop pretending that there is some rational remedy for this irrational problem. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work to battle ignorance wherever we find it. That's what I'm doing now. We must do that. But those efforts aren't going to offer a quick fix for the problem at hand. No, we must turn our attention away from the deluded proponents of the anti-vax movement. Anti-vax is going to anti-vax. And take concrete steps instead to remove the threat and prevent the real harm they're causing to society. We need to abandon the absurd notion that a person's ignorance represents a valid reason for them to ignore guidelines designed to protect our society. We don't waive the restricted access to a nuclear power plant to individuals on the basis that they don't understand the behavior of the Higgs boson, do we? So how the hell can we justify letting people endanger the health of our society because they don't understand herd immunity? We need to adopt legislation that makes full immunization of all citizens and residents, legal or not, mandatory. We need to abolish non-medical exemptions, every single one of them. We need to enforce the laws as if our children's lives depended on it, as in fact they do. We need harsh penalties for those who choose to disregard the laws. Penalties along the lines of those used to punish other types of reckless endangerment. The crime of failing to vaccinate a child that results in the death of that child, or the death of a child or adult infected by the unimmunized child, should be treated like any other case of negligent homicide, manslaughter, or murder, depending on the specific circumstances. And people like Wakefield need to be held account for the misery and death they leave in their wake. We need to educate the public early and often about the importance of vaccination. We need to appoint independent watchdogs to monitor the behavior of pharmaceutical companies to ensure that vaccines remain safe, sterile, available, and affordable for all. We need to fund ongoing vaccine research and development and provide incentives to the labs working on much-needed vaccines with activity against HIV, malaria, herpes simplex, to name a few. We need to fully fund long-term vaccination monitoring programs to ensure ongoing effectiveness, track program compliance, 
and enforce mandatory vaccination policy. And the anti-vaxxers? What happens to them? Just ignore them and heed the sage advice of the late Chris Hitchens when he wrote, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Or for any ancient Romans listening in, quod gratis asseritur, gratis negator. Vaccinate your children. Good day. 